when you test of, when you do testing to that extent, you're going to find more people. You're going to find more cases. So I said to my people, slow the testing down, please. Recorded live from Hong Kong and Toronto. Toronto. Let's go. This is the PR and Law Podcast. The PR and Law Podcast. Turn it up. Turn it up. With your hosts, Cam McMurchy and you and Christy. Happy Father's Day. This is episode number 11 of the PR and Law Podcast. I'm your host, Cam McMurchy, along with you and Christy. Hello, Cameron. I am a PR guy based in Hong Kong and publisher of the Digital Bits PR and Communications newsletter. And you can find that at digitalbitspr.com. Ewan is an employment lawyer and partner at Duntroon LLP in Toronto, Canada. And you can find his firm online at duntroonllp.law. If you enjoy the podcast, please share it with a friend. It means a lot to us. And you can follow us on social media as well on LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. And our account name is PR Law Podcast across all of those social networks. And you can support us on Patreon as well. Uh, you can go to our website at prlawpodcast.com and click support the show. Lastly, we are on YouTube if you prefer to consume the podcast that way. And we are always open to taking your questions on the show as well. Legal PR or kind of whatever you like. Uh, you can tag us with the hashtag PRLawPod. And uh, we have a packed show coming up. We're going to talk about Trump, obviously, COVID. We're going to get into some hazing uh, and a bunch of other stuff. But Ewan, what's happening with you over in Toronto? We're getting into some hazing. I don't know. That sounds ominous. Well, we're going to discuss hazing. I don't think we're going to do any on this show. Okay. Okay. Well, that, that's the important part. Uh, things are good. Things are good. I want to give a shout out to my dad. Um, happy Father's Day. Uh, Cam, you know my dad. I know your dad. They know each other. They're both interesting, gregarious characters. Um, and they're both loyal and, listeners of the podcast as well. So yes, happy Father's <laughs> Day uh, to my dad as well. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so shout out to you, dad. Um, thanks for all of the wonderful support over the years and um, yeah, just for having a, having a great sense of humor and being an all around pretty, pretty great guy. Yes. Uh, Ewan, there's uh, all kinds of stuff on COVID and I want to, I want to dive into that sort of right off the top. Okay. So you know what the crazy thing is? The cases are still going up a lot. So worldwide we're at 8.8 million, 465,000 deaths. The U.S., I don't know what's going on. And I want to talk about this a little bit later, but 2.3 million cases in total they've had and 121,500 deaths. Canada's up to 101,000 cases with 8,400 deaths, which is also actually uh, quite high. Um, Hong Kong had um, kind of a bad week. We actually had 22 new cases this week, but all of them were imported. Um, and we had three today from, uh, well, three today in total, one from India, one from Indonesia, and one from Brazil. Um, we have gone eight consecutive days without any transmitted cases locally. So really, it, it's 100% of people flying into Hong Kong. Uh, and we had a death on Friday. A 78-year-old woman passed away from COVID-19. And that brings the Hong Kong death toll to five. 
So we have had five deaths now from COVID-19 and uh, 1,129 cases cumulatively. Um, so, you know, I, I think people were starting to feel optimistic several weeks ago. We were even talking about kind of uh, retiring the COVID section or at least making it less prominent. But it seems like this is coming back and it's coming back stronger, I think, than, than people expected. Well, yeah, I mean, we're, we're still trying to work our way out of stage one here. Um, we've had in Ontario six days in a row with fewer than 200 cases. And I mean, I'm sure that sounds like a lot coming from where you're coming from, Cam. But um, for us, that's that that's pretty good. Um, we you know, we we're at 300 cases uh, or fewer uh, about a week ago. So to get under that 200 threshold is significant. We're looking to have further openings finally, hopefully within uh, Toronto and Windsor, Essex and the Peel region, which are kind of the few last areas here in the province that have still been under pretty strict lockdown. So we're very hopeful that in the next week we might get to, to open up a little bit more. Well, you know, in the United States, um, I mean, we're seeing the cases tick up, but we're also seeing the economies open. And, and actually, many of them are, are open now uh, at the same time. And of course, the, the pace of, of cases is also increasing. And it almost seems like the people have gotten bored of COVID or it's um, like it didn't hold their attention long enough. So they want to move on. But the but the virus isn't isn't gone. It's still very prevalent. It's still around. And, um, I, you know, I read a, an article this week uh, in the Washington Post, and I'm going to put this in the show notes. And it asked the question, has the U.S. given up? Have they just thrown in the towel and said, look, this is just going to happen? Because, and, you know, as I read it, it quoted some, you know, diplomats and uh, government officials of, 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 of other countries kind of looking at the U.S. in dismay. And, and I think the reason it hit me is because I feel that here in Hong Kong as well. Like, I mean, obviously, Hong Kong is a very international city in terms of people from different countries being here. And then I work with people from many different countries. And and oftentimes people come up to me and ask and say, like, what's going on? Like, why why are they fighting about masks? Why are they opening the economy? Why are they doing this? And I have no good answer. Um, but it, it really feels to me like the first really significant time that the U.S. has really abdicated its leadership role and it's left the rest of the world wondering what's wrong with sort of this crazy uncle, the United States. Well, yeah, I mean, and the proof's in the pudding, right? I mean, you look at you look at the numbers, you look at the graph. I mean, almost every country that's um, that's dealt with with covid in any sort of serious, legitimate fashion, you see the number go up you see the numbers start to come back down. And when you look at the numbers in the United States, it's effectively plateaued. Um, and that's that's really, really something. And I mean, from a Canadian perspective, it's also hugely problematic for our economy. I mean, the U.S. is our large, largest trading partner. Our border remains closed. And that's a lot of business that's effectively just continuing to have to sit on the sideline, which of course, means more laid off employees, more businesses filing for bankruptcy. It's a huge, huge issue. So, you know, as much as we can say here in Canada, we're we're getting around to getting our house in order and getting back to normal. I mean, that's only going to get us so far if our largest trading trading partner is is continuing to be in a in a state of crisis. You know, following on from that, I think you're kind of 
you're on to something, Ewan, because, uh, you know, the, the U.S., I, I think it's fairly clear that they are a declining power. I mean, not absolutely, but relatively. Um, I mean, the U.S. obviously is the most powerful nation in the world in terms of the economy and obviously its military and whatnot. Um, but but that's that's fine. But really, it's trends that matter. Um, and you can feel the rest of the world realizing like, Hey, we have to kind of look after ourselves here. And I know Europe has already gone through that. Um, you know, with Trump being very sort of, um, aggressive in terms of NATO, uh, and working with the European union and talking openly about the European union splitting up and him being in favor of that and being pro Brexit and so on and so forth. Um, but, but I do feel like the world saying, okay, like maybe, like we can't count on these guys anymore. So we're going to have to figure this out and we're going to start have to cooperating more among ourselves. And if that happens, I mean, I think it's already happening, but if that happens to a very high degree, this could hurt the United States for a very, very long time. And, and, and maybe irreparably um, because you know, these things, once you have a break like that economically, once you kind of lose, uh, once the U S loses its reliability factor um, that can be very difficult to bring back. Well, I mean, yeah, I don't, I don't know. I wouldn't go as far as to say irreparably. I think that we're starting to see Americans themselves recognize that, hey, maybe we can't count on our government to the extent that we thought we might be able to. And I think there's a direct correlation between that position and obviously the protests that we're seeing, the the, the Black Lives Matter movement that, you know, they the people cannot put their faith in state agents to the extent that perhaps they thought they could, or that, I mean, it could simply be that state agents are coming under the microscope in a way they never have before. And I think it's impossible to sort of separate those movements and the protests from, from COVID. I think COVID may have been the catalyst. We've talked about obviously the, the incident with, with George Floyd and his murder. Um, But there's most certainly a correlation between George Floyd, the protests, Black Lives Matter, and COVID. It's all reflective of the people rising up and recognizing, you know what, maybe the people in power, maybe we're not really in a position where we can kind of take them at their word anymore. I think that's been a very long-term Republican objective, in fact, uh, was for 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 people to realize that they cannot uh, put, put their faith in government. They've been trying for a very long time to undermine those institutions, and I think they, they to some degree, have been, have been quite successful doing so. Um, you know, I, I think the other thing that, that really jumps out at me is the stock market. Now, I mean, you know that I, I'm trading almost every day in the market, and, you know, there have been several times where I've actually gotten out and then jumped back in just because it keeps rising. And I'm looking at the market now. It's, it's basically, it's just a few percent below, uh, you know, where it was pre-COVID. And, and you look at the economic damage that's already happened and the unemployment. And now you look at the fact that this, this, this COVID could linger now well into next year. I mean, we could be months and months away uh, of, of things going back to normal if they even do in the next couple of years. And so the, the market is not reflecting reality at all. And if, if I did have a big market portfolio at this point, I would be very nervous about that. So would I, frankly. <laughs> I guess it's a good thing that I don't. Or maybe it's not. I, I don't know. But um, yeah, I, I take the point all the same. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's really going to be interesting to see what happens with that. Um, the other thing, actually, two more quick news items I, I wanted to bring up. Um, one is uh, Beijing. So, I mean, I lived in Beijing for, for many years. You and you've visited Beijing a lot. Um, 
I've got my 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 WhatsApp notifications coming in. Um, so I mean, it's it's a it's a it's a great place. It's a fun place to go. Um, but they're now running into COVID in a way that they had not before, and it was in a in a uh, in a in a market, another wet market that they have there, where there's fruit and vegetables, but also some some salmon and things like that. Now this this market is in the district of Fengtai, which is. Uh, I actually have relatives who live in that uh, that district of Beijing, and I mean it is under lockdown. I mean, um, relatives there are not leaving their apartment; they're not able to leave the apartment, um, and there are now hundreds of cases. I don't know if we've hit a thousand yet. I should check that. I was just looking it up, but there's hundreds of cases in Beijing as of now, and I know the government is extremely nervous about this. There's no lockdown of Beijing yet, but the government has encouraged people to stay and to not leave Beijing. A lot of flights have been canceled, uh, but not all of them. And I think, uh, you know, this is a big second outbreak in Beijing. And uh, this is also going to impact China a lot. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm sure it is. And um, again, what what's always interesting is to what extent are we actually being told what's going on when you're, you know, when we're dealing with sort of the media concentration as it, as it operates or doesn't operate for that matter in, in mainland China, I mean, we've, we've sort of seen trickles of information coming over here, but um, I wonder how skewed some of those numbers are in terms of new confirmed cases. Yeah. And that's a, that's a, that's a fair, fair skepticism. I mean, this is where I have to almost declare my own, my own interest. I do work for a Chinese company uh, who's often involved in these things, especially in terms of, of information. I mean, I do think, I mean, Beijing is publishing numbers uh, and the numbers are going up drastically. So I give them credit for that. But in terms of like, what are the actual numbers? I don't know if we'll ever know. Um, and I don't even know if some of that is incompetence or or if it's um, sort of an, an, an effort to hide some of the real information or if it's just nobody has the real information. I, I think this I mean, obviously, this impacts China in a big way because it's such a huge country, um, but but other places as well. Sometimes it is hard to get information. Sometimes people are dying or are getting it that, that, that aren't counted. Uh, and that's that's a big issue. But I think, you know, Beijing or sorry, the, the Chinese government was obviously they're responsible for this in the first place. I mean, there's lots of evidence that they were aware of the coronavirus in December of 2019 and had not made an official announcement until the 20th of January. And you think back, if they had dealt with it earlier, I mean, we could have potentially saved a lot of the deaths and a lot of the economic destruction that's happened since then. Uh, And I think they wear that and that's fully uh, their responsibility. Um, but at the same time, after the 20th, they were very decisive. Uh, and I think that's an example of sort of an authoritarian country having powers that democracies don't in terms of really locking things down. Obviously, there's good and bad points to that. Yeah. I mean, I remember in the early days listening to a, you know, a lot of a lot of so-called experts talking about how locking down the population just simply doesn't work, saying, oh, no, no, you know, this is not the way to to resolve these issues. It's not how the science works. And of course, what we what we subsequently found was that that's precisely what most European countries subsequently did and and Canada has done um, and most parts of the world have done, which is is resulted in in lockdowns all over the place. You know, I, I, you think back to, you know, the greatest generation in World War Two. And even even afterwards, and the sacrifices, or even the generations previous, the sacrifices they made in order 
for their country, basically. And you take a look at now, you know, yes, I know a lot of people have lost their jobs and a lot of people are having serious economic hardship. But at the same time, a lot of people were just being asked to stay home. Like you can stay home, you can watch television, you can go on the internet, you can do anything you want. And that was still too difficult. People still didn't want to sacrifice that. And that's the part where I have a problem. It's just, I feel like we're at the point now, particularly in the US, but I also, I think this is elsewhere, where there is such a culture of individualism, which, you know, 90% of the time is excellent. I'm fully in favor of that. And I would, you know, fight to defend that. But sometimes, sometimes we have to band together and sacrifice ourselves a bit for the greater good. And I I worry the U.S. has lost the capacity to do that. Well, yeah. And to your point, I don't think this is a uniquely American problem. I think some countries have been better at it than others. But um, there's clearly a segment of every population that has taken the position that, well, I don't need to abide by this, this, this extreme level of state intervention on my individual rights. Um, I should be free to go and do as I please to continue to to go to work, to continue to shop at my 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 stores that I like to shop at. And and to your point, I mean, I I really get get frustrated by that as well. And again, as I, I know I spoke about many, many weeks ago, if that's the way that you feel, then go and live in some rural environment where, you know, you can have a farm on several acres of property in the middle of nowhere and continue to do as you please. But if you have chosen to live in a densely populated urban center, then you're part of a social contract where it's not just about you. It can't be just about you. You have to be considerate of those around you, regardless of whether you agree with the policy or you disagree with the policy. It's bigger than you. And if you take issue with that, with that, then please just move somewhere else. Please just go somewhere else. And I, I sound really negative on the U.S. Uh, you know me. Like I'm, I'm actually quite pro-U.S. I mean, I, I have a lot of respect for the country and its accomplishments. And I, I go there a lot. I've spent a lot of time there. And, you know, I've considered working there. So, you know, I'm not, I'm not your traditional, you know, garden variety basher of the United States. Uh, I'm just extremely disappointed that this is this isn't this isn't the U.S. that that I sort of fell in love with. This is a very different animal now, uh, and it's it's well, yeah, and yeah. And I mean, but I think I don't think you're alone in 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 that idea. And I I think a lot of Americans feel exactly the same way that something has been lost here, um, and something needs to be recaptured in 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 that sort of traditional notion of the American spirit, whatever that 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 American experiment that American exceptionalism. And I think, you know, if there's one good thing that will come out of that, it's that as a population, they're reflecting on those issues and that sense of identity and trying to figure out, can we reclaim that? And if we do, what what does that identity look like today? Um, how has it changed? How do we want it to change? What do we want it to look like going forward? Um, and I think these are really, really important discussions to have. And, and at the very least, it looks like there are people that are, that are having them, important people that are having them. And that's why I think the term given up really sort of hit me when the Washington Post used that term, because it does feel that way. It feels like this is just too difficult. So they're just not going to, they're not going to try. Um, and I can tell you, Ewan, living on this side of the world, this, what's happening in the United States right now is just music to the ears of the Chinese leadership. They love what's going on. 
I mean, I, they could not wish for a better situation than this. And I, there was an article that came out this week as well that said, yeah, China's cheering for Trump's reelection. And, you know, the, the way they look at it is, yes, you know, Donald Trump has been very difficult on China, particularly with trade and the trade war. But the damage that he's doing to traditional U.S. alliances and to the U.S.'s reputation is a bigger gain than any loss from the trade war. And so they would rather see another four years of Donald Trump. And I think that's quite an indictment of, of sort of the state of the U.S. at the moment. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm, I'm, I'm concerned with our, with our own government um, with regard to its relationship with, with China right now as well. I mean, I, I don't know if you saw... If it, if it made news over there, but of course, earlier in the week, we, we learned that China has formally charged Michael Kovrig and Michael Spavar. Absolutely. The, uh, yeah, made news here, yeah, of course. Yeah, they've both been charged um, with espionage. And for those who don't know, these are the two Canadians um, who have been detained for over a year uh, in, in China, largely um, seen to be retaliatory for um, the, the Meng Wanzhou matter here in Canada, which is a, a long backstory to, to get into, but, um, suffice it to say that, that, that most are of the, of the impression that the, the arrest of the, the two Michaels as they're, as they're commonly referred to as, um, was, was retaliatory. And when asked about the charges, the espionage charges, I mean, our, our prime minister, um, said, quote unquote, that he's disappointed and he wasn't prepared to, to take any stronger of a position than that, which I found to be really, really well disappointing, frankly. Um, and I understand he's, he's caught between a rock and a hard place here in terms of trying to protect and maintain the relationship with China versus the relationship with the United States because of the, the, the Meng Wanzhou matter. But still, you know, I, I, I was hopeful that our government would, would take a stronger position to, to something like this than, you know, quote unquote, disappointment. These things are linked. I mean, the, the, the decline that people are seeing in the United States, and I, and I think some people who are really cheering it on might see more decline than others uh, because it's in their interest to see that. But China's growing aggressiveness is, is hand in hand with the U.S. sort of backing off out of international affairs. And I think, you know, Canada is much smaller than, than China, obviously. So China feels more aggressive there. Um, and it's not as fearful. China is not at all as fearful as it used to be. And you can see that in their, the islands and the military bases they're building in the South China Sea. And in there, there was the skirmish this week we haven't even talked about, you know, between Indian and Chinese troops on that uh, contested border area. Um, so this mm-hmm. is this is going to get, get worse. I did want to mention one thing. Um, I had a conversation, Ewan, on Friday night. Uh, with a former coworker when I was at the BC government in Canada. And I think, I think you, you know her. Uh, I don't want to mention her name on the show, but I could talk to you afterwards. But anyway, she has gone on from her provincial PR career to uh, head down to San Francisco. And I remember when I talked to her years ago, she was in heaven down in San Francisco. She loved it. Um, she, her husband ended up founding a very large internet company that is a household name. So she's obviously done very well. She had her own PR firm down there uh, and sold it after 10 years. And so she's obviously extremely well off. But when we had a a Zoom call Friday night, uh, you know, with some drinks and a nice catch up, you know, she was really down on the United States. And she was talking about, obviously with COVID, uh, she talked about the homeless problem in San Francisco. And then, you know, she talked about how she has friends that are making $500,000, $600,000 a year and struggling 
struggling to pay for housing, struggling to pay for proper schools for their children. There's obviously a teacher shortage there, uh, which exacerbates problems. And then she said, you know, she lives in a very Tony neighborhood of San Francisco. And she said she was watching television the other night and she heard three loud bangs. And she thought it sounded like gunshots, but then she said she'd never heard gunshots. So she didn't want to say for sure. Uh, but she said about a half an hour later, uh, she's in a, in a WhatsApp group with a bunch of other mothers in the neighborhood and it had lit up. And indeed uh, there was a guy driving through the neighborhood, firing his gun into the air. And, um, you know, she said to me in this conversation, she wants to move back to Canada. And, um, I, and I was really surprised to hear that she's actually a dual citizen and her and I used to talk often about the United States and how we both would like to work down there and live down there for a while. She did make it down there and did about as well as anybody could be expected to do. And to hear this coming from her, I think was another indictment, I guess, on the current situation down there. Yeah, there. Well, I saw something trending earlier this week, I believe uh, it was, a, I think the hashtag was Canada invade, invade us. It was a bunch of Americans um, requesting that that the Canadians come and invade the United States, notably bringing our, you know, our our public health care system and, and education system along with us, which I thought was 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 pretty funny. And I guess sort of speaks to some of the sentiment in the U.S. and what's and what's going on. But yeah, I mean, look, I mean, those those situations are always scary. I, I suspect, you know, we could probably find similar anecdotal stories of, of, of Americans that have come here. Um, but, you know, I, I, I take the point all the same. I mean, that's that's really, really scary stuff when, you know, an attack like that comes in into your neighborhood, into your sort of bubble. It's something else entirely to watch it on television. But when you're impacted directly, yeah, I mean, these things are scary, right? With her son sleeping in the other room. Yeah, it is uh, absolutely scary. Um, one last thing. Uh, there was some news this week. John Bolton, who's definitely, I mean, the left does not does not like John Bolton. He's been a target for many years. But of course, he's been in the, he was in the Trump administration for what seemed like just a few months. Uh, and he has a uh, tell-all book about to come out. Uh, the president's lawyers tried to stop it. Uh, but uh, we're unable to. So this report here really quickly is from WGN Radio in Chicago. The Trump administration's attorneys argued in court to block John Bolton's memoir about his tenure working for President Trump from being published. They failed. You will get to see the book. Here's ABC's Andrew Dimbert. In his new book, The Room Where It Happened, Bolton describes a chaotic White House where he claims Trump's only strategy is re-election. In an interview with Martha Raddatz, Bolton says Trump's attempt to block his book was not about national security. The president isn't worried about foreign governments reading this book. He's worried about the American people reading this book. The president firing off a Twitter attack on Bolton today, taking the judge's words as a victory, saying Bolton broke the law and has been called out and rebuked for so doing with a really big price to pay. When they say in the room where it happened, I want to break out in song from the Hamilton soundtrack. Uh, but you and what are your what are your thoughts on 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 Mr. Bolton's book? Well, I, I guess, you know, so what? I, I mean, Look, it, it, I don't. Um, I, I'm not suggesting that the man shouldn't be able to publish a book talking about what transpired in his experience. Um, provided, of course, he's not disclosing classified information in the process. But again, so what? To I mean, to to what extent? Um, I mean, what what what's the goal? 
what's the, what's the message? I mean, I, you know, I saw news stories around this talking about, oh, it's explosive revelations. I mean, well, come on. I mean, first of all, do you think that there is anybody in the Trump camp that's going to pick up a copy of this book, read it and read it and, and conclude that, you know what? Hey, actually, I think Bolton makes some good points and I just don't think I can support our president anymore. I mean, does anybody believe that this is going to change the hearts and minds of, of his base and of his camp. I mean, I just, I just don't think it will. I, I think we've learned already that nothing is going to, to, to do that. So if that is in any way part of the impetus or incentive or motivation for, for releasing something like this, and I understand that it's, it's news and it must be covered, but you know, let's not get all worked up and foaming at the mouth about how this is going to change the hearts and minds of, of his base. Cause I, I think we know that it won't. This is the latest uh, example of um, entertainment as news. News as entertainment. Um, I, I actually think you know some of the um, allegations in the book that I have heard are quite serious. I actually wish they would be given proper um, review. I wish people would take them seriously because actually they are serious, but I don't think the media is going to take it seriously. And like you said, I don't think the public is going to, all this is, is a salacious, you know, uh, tabloid style read. I do think the issues are serious. I don't think it will be taken seriously. And, um, that's, that's unfortunate. Um, okay. You and I, we got, uh, even more stuff to talk about. So let's do that on the other side. Continue the debate with us on social media. Join us on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at PR Law Podcast. All one word, P-R-L-A-W Podcast. Send us your questions now by email to askusatprlawpodcast.com. That's all one word, askusatprlawpodcast.com. Or on social media with the hashtag PRLawPod. That's hashtag P-R-L-A-W-P-O-D. Take it away, dog. All right. So I wanted to talk about, well, big, big week if you're uh, if you're following U.S. Supreme Court cases. And I understand that may not be the the sexiest of subjects for for people to follow. But I mean, on on Thursday, the Supreme Court of the United States blocked the Trump administration's um, attempt to block the deferred action for childhood arrivals. That's the the, the DACA. Um, era program introduced by Obama that uh, protects hundreds of thousands of immigrants brought to the the U.S. as children um, from deportation. So um, that was sort of the first the first big decision that was released. But the one I wanted to talk about, Cam, um, was the the six three decision from the Supreme Court affirming that sexual orientation and gender identity discrimination are prohibited uh, under the Civil Rights Act. Of, of 1964, a, a really incredible decision. So when you say again, prohibited, I I, what, what, what do you mean exactly? Sorry, say again. What? When, when you say prohibited, what do you mean? Well, it, that, that under the previously, the position was that under the law, there was no prohibition against discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation or gender identity. Okay. So you so could not discriminate question, against people on those grounds. Yes. Okay. And now you can. So, so, so the, so the the issue the issue before the court was the you know the this particular this particular act talks about discrimination in the workplace on the basis of race, color, religion, sex, or national origin. So those were the protected grounds. You could not be discriminated on the basis of those protected grounds. So the question before the court was whether or not the definition of sex 
under the act protected members of the LGBTQ community from being fired simply on the basis of their sexual orientation or gender identity. That was the question before the court. So really, really interesting. How do we interpret gender? But of okay, course, so, or, hang or on. sex rather. I, but I just want to stop you there just to make sure I'm, I'm, I'm following correctly. So, I mean, obviously, like you said, under those grounds that you listed, there could be no discrimination. But in there is sex. So you cannot discriminate yes. based on sex, which yes. I think traditionally or according to sort of previous thought was male or female. If you can't discriminate if you're a person because of their male or a female. And so the question being raised is, does sex include LGBTQ kind people? <laughs> For lack yeah. of a better can, term, can sex can the definition of sex be broad enough to encompass sexual orientation and gender identity? And this is important because if if it's protected, then if somebody is trans or a lesbian or gay, they are protected. But if not, they're not protected and could be fired or could be discriminated against on that basis. Correct. Right on. Okay, carry on. Okay, so the, the case dealt with. There were three plaintiffs. So there are three plaintiffs involved in this case, three workers. One was a, a child welfare worker who worked for um, Kling County, Georgia. He began playing in a, in a gay recreational softball league soon after, you know, influential members of the community were making disparaging remarks about his sexual orientation. And he was subsequently fired for conduct, quote unquote, unbecoming of a, of a county employee. So that was one of the plaintiffs. Another one, Donald Zarda was a skydiving instructor who, after mentioning that he was gay, was fired only days later. And then the third, Amy Stevens, uh, she worked for a funeral home in Michigan. Now, when she got the job, initially she presented as male. And then two years into service, um, she was diagnosed with gender dysphoria and decided that she was going to start living as a woman. And when she informed her employer of that, she was subsequently terminated. So those are the three plaintiffs before before the court. Now, sadly, you know, Mr. Zarda and Ms. Stevens have, have since passed away. So it's only Gerald Bostock that's still still actually around um, for the decision. So writing for the majority, this is this is the court getting around to it. Interestingly, was Justice Gorsuch. Now, Gorsuch was Trump's first appointee mm -hmm. to the court. Mm -hmm. And he wrote the majority decision and the court found and ultimately held that um, sexual orientation and gender identity is discriminatory and is prohibited under the definition of sex of the, the civil, the civil rights act. Um, and they do. So he, he says that, you know, sex plays a necessary and indistinguishable role in the definition of, of gender. And there's a really, really cool, and I wanted to read this passage because I thought it was a really incredible illustration of how he makes his argument that you can't separate sexual orientation and gender identity from the broader definition of sex. So I just want to read this short passage, Cam. Mm -hmm. So imagine an employer who has a policy of firing an employee known to be homosexual. The employer hosts an office holiday party and invites employees to bring their spouses. A model employee arrives and introduces a manager to Susan, the employee's wife. Will the employee be fired? If the policy works as the employer intends, the answer depends entirely on whether the model employee is a man 
or a woman. So to be sure, that employer's ultimate goal might be to discriminate on the basis of sexual orientation. But to achieve that purpose, the employer must, along the way, intentionally treat an employee worse based in part on that individual's sex. So you can see where they're going here, right, Cam? They're, they're, the court is attempting to demonstrate that you cannot in any way separate the two, that they're intrinsically linked. And because they're intrinsically linked, that the definition and protected ground of sex should include sexual orientation and gender identity as well. It's an interesting finding because if someone were to ask me, you know, can you discriminate on the basis of sex? I would think that is gender. That like that that would be sort of my definition, personal definition would be that. I'm very pleased that uh, LGBTQ people are being protected. Absolutely, uh, that that's the right call. Um, and it's 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 kind of a. I mean, I don't know how to describe it. I, I understand that example that you just gave. Um, but at the same time, I can see how this would be quite controversial um, because it does it does to some degree change the change the definition of sex, does it not? Well, and I, I mean, funny enough, you're sort of you're, you're jumping ahead to the next point, which is is the dissent. Right. I mean, um, there was a dissenting opinion in the court and they raised precisely your argument that, you know, it, the the act prohibits discrimination on the basis of race, color, religion, sex and national origin, sexual orientation and gender ident- identity aren't on that list. They also talk about how, you know, there have been numerous bills put before Congress over the past 45 years attempting to to add sexual orientation and, and in more recent years, gender identity. And none of them have passed both houses. So, you know, they they, they sort of take that position that, that, that you're taking that even as understood today, the concept of discrimination because of sex is different from discrimination because of sexual orientation or, or gender identity. Yeah. Well, I'm pleased with the result of this ruling in general. I can see how this would be very uh, divisive and could be contested uh, just because of the logic behind it and the sort of redefinition and the fact that this would probably qualify as sort of activist judges, which is, uh, you know, something the right often says. I mean, as you point out, it wasn't able to get through uh, the House or the Senate, and yet uh, the the Supreme Court has basically made this the law. So, I mean, Ewan, what does this mean then for, for employers in the U.S.? And I guess, what does it mean for, for employees? Well, I mean, it, it means that a number of employers are probably going to have to, to redraft um, policy and procedural procedural manuals um, to to address this issue. Uh, I mean, the reality is is that about half of the states um, did not have any sort of protective language. So yeah, I mean, it's it's a huge sort of monumental decision in that regard, um, and I think it's going to it's going to result in a fundamental alteration of the employment relationship in those states. Um, for employees, what does it mean? Well, I mean, hopefully it means, and you know, again, this is just one decision. Inevitably, there will be a number of subsequent decisions that will attempt to distinguish the law in some regard. Um, a number of test cases, I, I suspect in terms of employees being out, um, and advising their employers of, of their sexual orientation or gender identity, you know, issues around same sex washrooms, those sorts of issues, um, so, I mean, this is certainly isn't the end of this. We will hear a lot more, but I, you know, I wanted to touch on something that you sort of, you, you, you're talking about, about that sort of conservative approach 
on on the bench in in the court. And what you're talking about, Cameron, referring to is the textualist approach. And that's the idea that the law should only be read as it was written at the time. And again, this was one of the issues that was addressed in, in the dissent, that if every single living American had been surveyed in 1964 when this law was created, uh, it, it would have been hard to find anyone who would have thought that discrimination because of sex meant discrimination because of sexual orientation. I mean, not to mention gender identity, uh, a concept that was essentially unknown at the time. So they and the dissent talks about this. This is effectively their argument that while the majority was trying to argue a textualist approach saying that, well, no, no, no the definition of sex should include or does include sexual orientation. The dissenting opinion is saying, well, no, to your point, this is an activist approach. You are effectively legislating and not acting uh, as as a judiciary, which is what your role is. Yeah. And I see I see that argument. And you're right. This is not over. I mean, this is going to continue the debate over this. And it's interesting, you know, uh, in that rally in Tulsa that the president did on Saturday evening, um, he mentioned uh, Judge Gorsuch. In that, uh, in his in his rally there, and people booed. There was a smattering of boos in the audience because uh, Trump was taking credit for his appointment. Uh, but but that ruling is going to be very unpopular, I think, in particularly red states, in particular regions of the United States. Yeah, and I mean, you know, again, from from a Canadian perspective, this is something that I I certainly struggle with as as a lawyer. I mean, our approach to the law in the, through our courts. It's fundamentally different. I mean, we talk about, you know, Canada's constitution as a quote unquote living tree that the idea of it's capable of evolving to sort of meet new social and economic realities. And this has always sort of been a fundamental distinction between the two systems that the American system really is based on this sort of textualist approach that we have to look at the law in terms of what was the intention of the writers at the time that the legislation or whatever it is that you're examining was was drafted and put in place. And, and again, while I can certainly uh, appreciate that approach as sort of a purist approach to, to law, um, you know, I, I just, I, I don't see how we can ignore the social change that's occurred along the way. Now, you know, the, the American answer to that is, well, that's what government's for, that government can legislate change. That's not our role uh, as the judiciary. But, you know, I think more often than not, the judiciary is better placed than the government of the day to assess these issues and to reflect upon prior cases where the where the law has been going over the last 20, 30 years and where they anticipate it going going forward. I think you have to look at those economic and social factors when when rendering these sorts of decisions. Yeah, I, I, I agree with that to some degree. I mean, I think, you know, the effort and the examination and the weighing of of issues and history and context and all of this, you know, that that Supreme Court justices have to do is important. In that sense, it probably is better than an elected official. But at the same time, I can understand if I were a uh, Republican in uh, Tennessee or Mississippi, I would be furious because you would think that if if there's going to be a change to a definition that has this big of an impact and that's this controversial, you would you would want that to go through uh, an elected legislature or an elected body of some kind. And, you know, the Supreme Court justices are not elected. They're appointed by the president. Um, And so there's there's no there's no accountability in that sense. And they also have jobs for life, which is the other thing. Um, 
so I, you know, it, it's difficult because I agree with the outcome. And so I don't want to sound like I'm disagreeing or I'm trying to, to knock it down. I do agree with it, but, but I, I fully understand why people would oppose this happening this way. You know, I completely get it. And I can see if this were on another issue that didn't go the way I, I, I agree with, you know, I, I could take up arms for the other side, you know, if I had to, because it is, it's, it's controversial to, to make legislation this way. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and if, depending on which side of the, uh, of, of the Supreme Court you side with, um, yeah, you're, you're, you're absolutely right. Show your support to the PRN Law Podcast by making a one-time donation or setting up a subscription with us on Patreon. Every little bit helps us keep the lights on and bring the show to you each week. If you'd like to chip in, please visit prnlawpodcast.com. That's prnlawpodcast.com. Click support the show. Thanks for helping us out. Okay, you and there were uh, two things I wanted to mention this week. Uh, one is kind of short off the top, uh, related to the uprising right now in the United States uh, because of the the murder of George Floyd. Uh, you know, which we have, we've talked about on the show. Uh, we get into it a lot last week, if you want to go back and, and have a listen uh, to that as well. Uh, but one of the big uh, fallouts is there's some brands that are changing. I think, you know, it made pretty big news this week that Aunt Jemima uh, syrup is finally going to go away, that brand. It's shocking that you and Aunt Jemima has been around for 130 years. I mean, it's wow. remarkable uh, that it, it has lasted that long. Um, but it's going to go away. A couple of other ones already. Uh, Eskimo pie gone. Uncle Ben's also gone. And uh, cream of wheat. All of those are changing due to the, the racial stereotypes. And, you know, some people are asking, all of this is happening, but the Washington Redskins, the NFL team, remains, still hasn't been changed. And I wonder... I wonder if that's going to happen because the NFL, you know, as we also discussed last week, uh, is one league that um, has flipped sides uh, after Colin Kaepernick and his kneeling during the anthems. The NFL has come out and basically endorsed Kaepernick and has now said that he should uh, he should get a tryout with an NFL team. So I don't know how you can take that role and then maintain that Redskins are appropriate for an NFL team name. So that might might change as well. Well, and what what about you know the Cleveland Indians and Atlanta Braves and Major League Baseball? Um, I, I I don't know if there's been any, any any word from their from from their camps on this, but um, I mean obviously they they would arguably fall into the same the same pile. Yeah, and I think I think it's you know like we're seeing with the brands. I mean, Aunt Jemima was the first, but once you have one, all of the other brands that are somewhat questionable realize the spotlight is coming. And so they jumped out ahead of it and we see a bunch of brands pulled uh, in quick succession. I suspect the same will happen with sports. I mean, at the moment, uh, they've they basically held firm on these team names. But I think once one finally buckles, the others are going to happen pretty quickly because it becomes even harder to defend uh, the position. Um, I want to stick with sports, actually, Ewan. And I, I don't know if you've heard much of this this week. It's actually a story that came out of Canada that is quite remarkable, but it does apply to the United States and I think probably uh, other parts of the world as well. And it involves hazing and what some players have traditionally done to rookies or, or other young players on their team for those people to, or for those players to sort of gain acceptance and support uh, among their teammates. 
I remember in high school uh, hearing about hazing and I knowing it was kind of around and hearing some stories. Some of it was kind of gross, but not over the top. But what we have now, Ewan, is two former CHL, which is the Canadian Hockey League. It's a junior league in Canada. Two players, Daniel Carcillo and Garrett Taylor. And they've initiated a class action lawsuit against the Canadian Hockey League and its three major junior leagues. And now it's a 46-page document filed in Ontario Superior Court in Toronto. Uh, And it describes multiple incidents, including players urinating and spitting on rookies in showers while a head coach laughed and first year players being struck on their bare buttocks with a sawed off goalie stick. Uh, there are a lot worse than this in the, in the, uh, in the paper. Uh, and they allege that it was widespread throughout the league and it uh, basically amounted to sexual abuse um, and bullying uh, of, of underage players. Now, the interesting part of this, Ewan, is Daniel Carcillo was a uh, a tough guy in the NHL. He was a goon. Uh, he did play for a number of years, even won st- two Stanley Cups. Um, but he, when he retired, he became a, a coach of of young players, and then he realized he didn't he didn't want to basically encourage kids to take up the sport. And then he began to confront some of what happened to him and some of what he did. And he opened up on Twitter about it. And this was last year. And uh, players began sending him stories of the past and things that happened to them. And uh, it became a really big issue. And it's led directly to this uh, class action lawsuit. I do want to play a clip here, Ewan. This is from uh, a Vancouver radio station called TSN 1040 in Canada. And uh, the person speaking, his name's Rick Dollywall. He's actually a guy that I know, and I worked with him when I was in radio in Vancouver. And he covered junior hockey uh, for, for, for many years in the 90s uh, when some of this was alleged to have taken place. So I just want to play, uh, this is Rick Dollywall on uh, TSN 1040. Hey, if I'm sending my kid, who is 16 years old, to Saskatchewan to play junior hockey, and this is happening, as a parent, Moj, I'm furious. I don't want that. Uh, Jason Burnaby's already called me out. Uh, doesn't happen anymore, Rick. What the F? I'm not saying it doesn't happen. Okay, let me rephrase that. It still happens in pockets, but not as bad as Carcillo saying, boy. And when I go back, when I was covering junior A hockey in, in the, the 1990s, Bob, mm-hmm. In BC, Alberta, I saw stuff, but we didn't have a whistleblower. We didn't have somebody that says, hey, did you see what he did to that rookie, Rick? That, that, should we call the cops or should we call a lawyer? I didn't see, as bad as Carcillo was saying, I saw pockets of that on the bus. I saw it on road trips. I'm not going to lie to you, but I, I cannot condone those actions. I bring this up. Ewan, we've actually mentioned hockey on this podcast before as a sport that has a real image problem, and this is the PR tie-in. I don't think that this is only or only happened in hockey. I think it's happened in a lot of sports. I think rugby is another one, football. But I, I do think that that the damage done, it doesn't matter if this has happened in other sports as well. Hockey is going to take another beating over this. And, the, you know, the Washington Post has already done a bit of an expose on this case. And uh, it's such a bad look. And it does so much damage. And especially now, when there are no sports happening, and when nothing's going on, 
and a story like this comes out, this is gold to the ESPNs and the TSNs in Canada and other sports outlets and news outlets that are looking for for, for stuff to cover. And it's going to get widespread you know, uh, publicity. And it's, it's just so, so damaging. And it's something the NHL and I think hockey in general is going to have to look into. Yeah. And, and I mean, you're right. We, you know, we've discussed this before. There's clearly some systemic issues in the game of hockey that need to be addressed. And this isn't an, and necessarily an NHL issue or a junior hockey issue. I mean, this is the sort of thing that really, if the league is going to take this seriously, the league I suspect needs to start introducing some uh, some sort of education in the very very junior hockey leagues and i mean you know children that are starting out six eight ten um there needs to be a fundamental shift in the approach to the game from a cultural perspective and gender relations that needs to occur there because the only way you're going to get to the root of this issue is to get to the root of the issue and this is this behavior by you know a lot of these players is so it's so ingrained going back to when they were kids that it's not really enough to try and say oh well, we're going to we're going to tackle it in the NHL i mean the damage has already been done there so i think this is really going to be something that they have to address in youth hockey and and again i don't i don't follow the sport as closely as you do cam so perhaps youth hockey is addressing this perhaps they are taking steps but i think that's really where where the change has to start well, I don't know if they are. Um, so you heard Dolly while there say it's still happening in pockets. I mean, it's really hard to say what exactly is happening because it is traditionally kept under wraps. I think in a lot of the examples that were cited, I mean, even coaches sometimes were aware or it happened in front of them, which is a, a complete dereliction of duty because you're an adult. You're As a coach, you're responsible for your player's safety. And these are young kids. If we're talking in junior, we're talking sort of 15 to 18-year-olds. Um, and, and this kind of behavior is outrageous. You know, uh, Rick mentioned on that, on that uh, podcast also that, um, you know, he was on buses, you know, going between towns for games where, you know, oftentimes a, a, a rookie hazing ritual is basically taking all of the clothes off the rookie uh, players, usually two or three, and then shoving them in the bus bathroom and then throwing in all of their clothes. But they were not allowed to come out until they put on their own clothes in the dark. And if they came out wearing the wrong thing, they had to go back in. And he said when he was on the bus, he just thought it was normal. It was just what teams do. And you look at it now and you go, it's outrageous. I mean, surely it was outrageous then I would think, but then I was thinking back to, you know, even just my own memories. Like I was aware, I don't know if you, cause I mean, you, you and I, you were not were in the same, same high school. I had heard stories of hazing in other schools or in other places, kind of word of it floating by. And it was something that I, I was kind of aware of, but I, I never I, I never saw it. I was never part of anything like that. I mean, was it something that you knew of? No, not not really. I mean, as you know, I've, I've, I've been a, a, a soccer player all my life. I still play pretty competitive soccer. Um, that was just not that was never part of part of our game. It was never something that I witnessed. Um, or participated in it, it just, it, and, and I don't think it's because I didn't see it. I just don't think that it existed. Um, but again, I don't think it was outrageous behavior, Cam. Like I, I think it's one of those things in hindsight, it's probably outrageous behavior in hockey, but I suspect for the players who were there at the time and involved in it, 
that that culturally that was in fact the norm and was to be expected and everybody knew that hey you're going to be put through the ringer as a as a rookie and this is this is how it goes and it's a rite of passage all those sorts of typical jocular arguments we hear in support of this kind of stuff um, I don't think that it, that it was outrageous. And, and again, I think that that's why if, if the NHL is really serious about getting away from this and from a branding perspective, I think they have to, then, you know, certainly what I would be advising is get into the junior leagues, you know, send reps from the NHL to junior hockey, uh, you know, across, I mean, across North America in particular, and talk about this stuff to the youth players because that's really the only way you're you're going to get rid of it. I mean, if by the time they're 15, 16, 18 in the NHL, it's too late. You got to get them young. Yeah, you're absolutely right. You know, I wish I could find the quote because there was actually the president of the Canadian Hockey League, the Junior League, uh, was quoted saying that he's satisfied that this has been resolved. And from a PR perspective, that's absolutely the worst thing he could have said. Because now, I'm not a PR guy, but that certainly sounds about the worst thing that you could possibly say. Yeah, he's put a target on himself because now people are going to go out there and find examples of it happening now or happening last year. And uh, and he's going to have to wear that. Um, And I I think it was I think he probably believes that. But I think it also kind of reflects that it's not maybe to this day taken as seriously as it should be. So, yeah, I, I think from a PR perspective, this has to be looked at seriously and there has to be action there has to be you know the junior leagues and the pro leagues sort of taking a leadership role on this going into these teams into these communities talking to people finding setting up programs where if something like this happens players can go and and talk about it and report it um this is all critical to restoring faith in it you know and like dolly wall said in that clip you know i if i have kids i would not want to send them to play hockey in one of these small towns even today um, you know, the, the, the way the culture is at the moment. And I, I feel sad saying that. I mean, I'm a Canadian. Obviously, I do watch hockey quite a bit. Uh, but I, I'm one of the few people that's in favor of removing fighting from the game entirely. I think it's ridiculous uh, that that's still part of the game, theoretically. And uh, I think it's this to me is the issue. And we've talked about this before. It's Canada's gun issue. It's the sort of violent history we have with hockey that we accept as normal. And we accept as part of the culture of that sport. When I think anybody else outside the sport looks at that and says, it is absolutely ridiculous that this is tolerated, but yet we keep it for whatever traditional reasons we do. And so it doesn't surprise me that sort of it's resulted in a lot of this crazy hazing and abuse. Yeah, it's it's funny you mentioned that. I remember the very first hockey game I went to watch as a as a kid, and it was one of the one of the Toronto Maple Leafs farm teams. And I went with my dad, who of course is is an immigrant from Scotland and has no history or relationship with the game, but he sort of understood that you know his kids are Canadian, and it's important to sort of get in touch with with Canadian culture. And he, he took us to a hockey game. And I remember in the, you know, at some point in the first period, and I, and I know it was the first period because it was very early on in the game, there was a bench brawl and both teams got out in the ice and were scrapping. And my dad just thought that this, he, he, he didn't even, he was, he was just completely in shock. And then looking around and watching everybody sort of cheering everyone on, I think that shocked him even more. And he just picked my brother and I up and he said, let's go, we're leaving. And that was it. And I never saw another hockey game with my father. I certainly never played hockey. Now that was, that was a financial uh, decision for my family. And that's another 
another concern and another problem that that the game has. Financially, it's such an expensive game in terms of the equipment, ice time, travel if you're playing competitively. Um, there's all kinds of problems. And really, if you look at the North American context, the game cannot reflect the values that it reflected in the 1950s. I mean, Canada is an incredibly multicultural society. The United States is an incredibly multi- multicultural society. And they're bringing different cultural norms and values into the game. The game has to adapt in that regard. If it's going to continue to have a rigid approach and talk about things like fighting being a culturally specific part of the game that's inherent in the game and will always be part of the game, they're just going to continue to alienate a lot of prospective players that will go and just play other sports. I mean, really, it's it's as simple as that, Ken. Yeah, and I don't blame them at all. Um, I, and, you know, I, I do think, uh, last point on this, you know, I don't know if it was Trump's election or if it was a combination of social issues starting to boil over or kind of a mix of just a lot of things, which is what I lean towards. There's a lot of triggers here, but I, I do see some similarities between the Me Too movement, the uh, the the current Black Lives La- uh, Matter uh, movement, and even something like this abuse and hazing. I mean, the, these the, there's people now looking back and going, we tolerated a lot of awful behavior and we did it because we thought it was normal or we were too scared to speak up or, you know, whatever the reason might be. And I think that's the one positive coming out of all of this is people are starting to say enough, enough. This shouldn't be happening. And if people are perpetuating it, they need to be held accountable for it. And, um, you know, on that, I'm absolutely in favor. Yeah, I think, um, you know, and this gets back to something I was saying at the beginning of the show, that there is an inherent relationship and a correlation between the protests and and covid and arguably um cases like this and covid and that's that for the most part people people often you know they have to choose what they engage with people have pretty busy lives nowadays they don't have a lot of time they're they're catching news in in drips and drabs here and there but right now a lot of people are still at home and they have more time to sort of reflect on these issues in a way that they haven't had in the past. And I think that that's why you're seeing stories like this that are having legs in a way that they don't typically have because people are having more time to sort of sit around and think, well, hey, I mean, you know, what's do I really want my kid involved in that kind of culture of hockey? Is that is that really the direction that I want to go? They have the time to reflect on these sorts of issues. Um, and I think it's good if that's the silver lining from COVID. Hey, fantastic. It's good to know that at least something good is coming out of this. One last thing, the really last thing this time on Daniel Carcillo. Um, I, I'm going to put the article, uh, the sort of profile of him in the show notes. It's actually not a recent profile. It's from several months ago uh, when he started this project. And it's quite a fascinating story because he was kind of a slick player as he got into junior and went through some of this. He became a tough guy as a result of that. And he became one of the sort of dangerous players out there. He was suspended many times. So there's many people look at him now and say, like, who are you to come out and and speak on these things? Um, but when he left the game, he he like I mentioned earlier, he tried to 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 coach kids and thought he could not he could not encourage kids to go into this kind of environment, and he walked away. Um, and it's only recently he's begun to sort of reckon with this. I mean, apparently all of his hockey memorabilia is just hidden in the basement; he doesn't even want to see it. 
Um, and so throughout this process, he said it's, it has been kind of a, a weight off to talk about it and, and some, make some progress on it. So, uh, it's, it's good that he's doing that. I, I, I didn't like him as a player, in fact. Um, but I, I, I really appreciate, uh, what he's doing now. Um, Ewan, okay. We have, uh, a few minutes recommendations. Uh, do you have anything on deck? Cause I, I sure do. Yeah. Well, um, I finally, finally, finally got around to watching Parasite. Ah. The, the Academy Award. Well, what did you think? Best picture. Um, it's it was fantastic. I understand I'm a little behind the curve on this, but for any of our listeners who may not have gotten around to watching it um, or thought, oh, you know, I just don't know if I'll be into it or if it's for me. Um, do yourself a favor. Sit down. Watch it. I I thought it was just absolutely fantastic. It's it's beautifully shot. The writing is really sharp. It's really witty. It's very funny, um, which I was not expecting. I found myself laughing out loud on a number of occasions. It's um, <clears throat> well, well worth your time. I don't know if you've seen it yet, Cam. Yes, I did. Uh, actually, you know, when my mother was visiting, uh, we watched it. Um, I, um, I, when it ended, it was one of those movies where I thought, what was that? Like, what did I just watch? Because there was not like a, a feeling that, came forward very quickly because there's so many layers to it. There's so many subtleties. There's so many things happening that I think to this day, I still sort of consider it. Somebody says, you know, did you like parasite? I go, I I don't know. Like, I think like I recommend people watching it to watch it. Um, did, did I like it? I, yeah, I think so. But it's, it's kind of a, it's, you're right. It's funny, but yet it's also so dark. And I, I like movies like this, actually. I, I much prefer watching a movie that leaves me thinking afterwards and, you know, for the day and the weeks afterwards. Uh, that, that to me, is a, a movie, a good movie, and one I'd recommend. Yeah, I agree. It, and I, it, I wouldn't, actually, I wouldn't disagree with anything you've said. Um, it sort of ended and I thought, huh. Um, and, and I've sort of been reflecting on it since, um, you know, I, I was chatting with my wife about it. She really enjoyed it. She's been reflecting upon it a lot as well. And, and again, I think those that, you know, that's the telltale sign of a really great picture that when you turn it off, you're still thinking about it for, for days, weeks after the fact it's, it's sort of, you know, warmed its way in and, uh, and, and, and won't let you go. And I, I definitely think it was one of those pictures. Yeah. Uh, that was my first recommendation. My only other one cam is I read the, uh, I don't know if you read the long form article. I think it was in the New York Times Magazine with John Stewart. Huh. Um, I was going to mention the same one. Okay. Well, hey, we can talk about it together. Um, <laughs> I thought it was. I just thought it was. You know, it was so interesting reading that because it really felt like th- this is. And this has happened to me a few times. I know we we talked about um, a few weeks ago. I recommended people listen to the uh, the speech that Killer Mike gave Mm -hmm. with regard to the protests and in listening to him speak i was thinking that gee this is this is the response i would want from my elected officials um why aren't my elected officials talking like this and reading that interview with john stewart i was sort of reminded of the same thing that i thought this is this is what i want elected officials to be talking about this is the position i want them to be taking on issues i want them to be this forthcoming um but they're not and unfortunately, that's sort of the, the the state of things that we're having to rely on people like Killer Mike and and John Stewart to to step up because nobody else is. 
You know, I I actually did not watch Jon Stewart that often when he was on The Daily Show. Um, It was big sort of when I moved to China in 04. Uh, it was on CNN actually internationally back then. Anyway, it was, it was not as easy to, to, to get. Um, so, so I'm not like a huge John Stewart fan, although like I, I really like him. I just didn't watch him as much as others did, but I think whether you like John Stewart or you hate John Stewart, this is worth a read because going through his answers, he has an uncanny way of just it, it, sort of his searing truth. He goes right to the core and you go, yeah, that's right. This is not complicated. That's what's happening. The way he describes some of the issues, some of the, some of the factors influencing politics. Um, he speaks with a clarity um, that is just so difficult to get anywhere else. And even in the, in the occasional places where I might have had an issue with what he said, uh, I, I think his intellect and his ability to sort of put things into words that we're feeling and already thinking uh, is really uncanny. And so, like I say, whether you're right or left or whatever – absolutely give this a read. I, I think it's one of those things, once you start reading it, you won't want to put it down. It is quite lengthy. It is in the uh, New York Times Magazine, I think. It was published on the 15th. Um, but but I will for sure put a put a link in the show notes because it's it really is a must read. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, just really, really, really compelling. And um, yeah, it, it, it. I mean, I guess it could be read as partisan i mean obviously john john stewart i don't know that he would necessarily not identify with the conservative wing <laughs> yeah, of, know of the american political system but i don't really think that it, it, it it's a partisan article per se i think he's he's more addressing critical issues and he and he attacks the media repeatedly throughout the article and it and attacks the media at large he doesn't suggest that well you know we've got this wing that's doing a great job in this wing that's doing a bad job he you know it's it's a it's a pretty um it's a pretty decisive damnation of media across the board or at least that was how i read it yep yep absolutely um uh anything else you and you want to add before we wrap this up we've made pretty good time today uh, I think that's it. Awesome. That's it, Cam. Awesome. Okay. Yeah, we covered a lot. I think uh, this. This. I think each week the flow is getting a little bit better, uh, which is good. Um, but we do want your questions, everyone. Uh, send them in. We're starting to get a few, uh, but we we want to wait until we get a couple of them so we can address them in a in a segment. So, um, if you have a question for you and or for me on basically anything, uh, post it on social media with the hashtag PRLawPod. P R L A W P O D. And if you like the show, please tell a friend tell a family member, tell your colleagues, uh, especially if they're into PR or legal kinds of things. Um, yeah, we're, you know, the, the, the ratings of this podcast are going up much faster than I expected, to be honest. Um, it's really encouraging for us. So we absolutely want to put more and more effort into the show, uh, which I think we, we do, but we definitely want to keep stepping it up as, as the audience grows. Um, and so, yeah, and you can also visit us on our website at prlawpodcast.com, prlawpodcast.com. All right. So thank you, Ewan. Mm -hmm. That was a lot of fun. Yeah, as always. All right. And uh, we will see everyone next week. Take care. This has been the PR and Law Podcast with Cam McMurchie and Ewan Christie. If you enjoyed the show, please share it with a friend or leave a review. You can also join us on LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook by following our account at PR Law Podcast. That's all one word. P-R-L-A-W Podcast. Thanks for your support. Cam and Ewan, strong guys.